Now our scripture reading this morning from Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you all today. If I haven't yet met you, my name is Matt. And for those who I have met but don't know me well yet, one thing you will probably quickly learn about me is that I can waste a lot of time watching sports on television, especially on Saturdays during the fall. I understand there's actually a sport game going on right now, so (laughs) I will be taking note of those who are... I'm pretty sure I'm going to hear the the Sports Center notification. Ryan, turn it off. Um, anytime though our our kids come into the room and and see a game on TV, they immediately ask, "Who do we want to win?" As though we all want the same same team to win. Our our five year old is really only interested in jersey color. Do we want the blue or the red team to win? And my response is always black and gold, honey, black and gold. <laughs> M-I-Z. Who do we want to win? It's no surprise that from a young age, winning a game or competition becomes for us one of the most important barometers of success. And the question I want us to consider today as people of faith, as followers of Jesus, is that the best framework? We've talked about this before, but I think it's worth revisiting as we turn our attention to today's New Testament text. But Brian Zond once commented in this way. He said, life is not a game. It is a gift. He went on, the purpose of life is not to win, but to learn to love well. I think for many, myself included, this is an important shift in perspective as we learn how to live into our identity as God's children. Life is not a game we are trying to win. So today I want us to consider the question, if it's not about winning a game, how do we define success as people of faith? How does the church understand success, but also as followers of Jesus? Is our understanding of success distinguishable from popular cultural definitions? This can be a difficult thing to think through because a desire for success is a fairly basic human impulse. I think by and large we long to come out on top on some level, and that desire in some ways is actually a part of our survival. It's 
not necessarily in and of itself evil, but I do think it's very important that we seek to understand and define success in thoroughly Christian terms, as opposed to our cultural understandings of success. And how is success defined culturally? In many different ways, and it obviously depends on the context. I mean, in junior high and, and high school, it might be something as simple as good grades. When I was in junior high and high school, that was my personal barometer of success. And I don't think it was probably the best barometer, but it is a fairly common one. Or, or maybe something even more meaningless, popularity. That is maybe the most arbitrary standard of success. But in adolescence, that's maybe all you really have. Have you been invited to the cool table at lunch? If not, in junior high, that can be interpreted as a personal failure. Now, some never really leave that goal behind. Not the actual cool kid table in a junior high cafeteria, but that yearning to be liked might persist as a measure of success. Am I known in the community? Am, am I admired? Do I run in enviable social circles? That's just one of many potential markers of cultural success. But I wonder if we boil down success in the popular imagination to just a couple of things, I wonder if it might be something like efficiency and ease. Efficiency and ease. So have I positioned myself in such a way where I can accomplish, produce, accumulate a lot with minimal energy, efficiency? And is my life relatively easy, carefree, comfortable? So maybe do wealth or power or some sort of privilege make it fairly easy for me to jump any and every hurdle I may face and get whatever I want, within reason, of course. I think, in a way, what I want to submit today is that Paul's experience, as described in today's text, his life story, in a way, challenges some of these popular notions of success, pointing us instead to the counterintuitive nature of success for the Christian church and maybe the Christian individual, which, as Mother Teresa famously said, has a lot more to do with faithfulness than it does with anything else. And I think we find that to be true in what Paul says here. So today we turn our attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church. In our Bibles, you'll find this near the end of the New Testament, but many scholars believe it was actually possibly one of the earliest books in our New Testament to have been written, perhaps sometime around the year 50 AD. This was during Paul's second missionary journey, a time when he was staying, he spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth, which we read about in Acts 18, but Thessalonica was a, a large city, a city of roughly 100,000 people, it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, and as such, the majority of its residents were probably pagan, many were probably dedicated to the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, but it was also unique in that there was also a fairly significant Jewish population in the city. So Paul arrives onto the scene on this missionary journey, 
And as was his custom, when he goes into a city that had a Jewish population, he begins his work by spending a few weeks ministering in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as he does this, a group of both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ, and thus the Thessalonian church is birthed. But in this case, as maybe was also his custom, his presence in this new city and his ministry there stirs up some trouble. Some of the religious leaders in the city aren't exactly thrilled with what Paul is doing. He's leading people away from the Jewish faith. He, he needs to be stopped. So some people are upset to the point that there's actually a riot. They seize Paul's host, a man named Jason. They take him to the authorities, charging him with treason. Look, These guys are claiming that somebody other than Caesar is Lord. You you need to do something about this and stop them. So Paul sees that the writing is on the walls. We we need to move on. Let's get out of Dodge while we still have the chance. Not not Dodge City, of course. Actually, our, our family this past summer went through Dodge City in Kansas on our way to Colorado. And if you've never been to Dodge City, the primary industry is meatpacking. So you can imagine with all of the livestock in and around the town, the aroma itself gives new meaning to the phrase, get out of Dodge. (laughs) Anyway, that's irrelevant to what we're talking about. I don't know why I thought it was necessary to share, but anyway, Paul determines let's get out of the city. I don't think we're welcome here anymore. Don't really want to spend more time in jail, so they leave. Well, as time passes, Paul is concerned about these new believers that he had left behind in the city. Um, How are they faring in my absence? Are they remaining faithful, or has pressure to abandon the faith been too great? So he sends his missionary companion, Timothy, back to the city to check on these new followers of Jesus. And the report Timothy brings back to Paul is not great. Apparently, Paul's opponents in the city, who basically had run him out of town, were continuing to try to undermine the work that he had been doing, questioning his motives, trying to not only unhitch these people from Paul, but also from the gospel of Jesus. So Paul, sensing that the situation is precarious, he writes this letter that we are reading from today. And one of the big goals in this letter is not only to defend his ministry, ensure them that his motives were not impure, and to encourage them to continue on in the Christian faith. So that was a lot of background, but I think it's important for understanding what we're reading from Paul. In chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1, where he writes this. You know, brothers and sisters that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel." We'll pause here before continuing to read this section. Paul begins by appealing to the results that they had in this city. Our visit was not without results. We had some success. I mean, the fact that there is still 
a church in that city that he is now writing to after spending only a few weeks in the city shows that they had some degree of success. Our visit, our ministry was not in vain. So on one hand, Paul uh, assumes that, well, those results, quantifiable, observable results, confirm the validity of our ministry among you. But as we continue reading, it seems that in his thinking, there is something even more significant than those obvious, observable, quantifiable results, because they could have had great numerical results. They could have garnered a lot of support among the people, experienced explosive growth, secured significant influence. They could have done all of that and still failed. That is a very real possibility. I think that remains a possibility today. Because while a definition of success that is observable and quantifiable might be helpful at times, from a Christian perspective, there is a much more reliable yardstick with which we measure. And I think Paul points to that. Shockingly here, he says, our experiences in Philippi prove the validity of our ministry. So we, we have three cities going on here. Remember, Paul is presumably writing from the city of Corinth to the church in Thessalonica, and he is appealing to their experiences in Philippi, saying that our experiences there prove the validity of our ministry or our success. And he outlines some of the experiences in Philippi. Maybe you remember that. Suffering. Physical beatings imprisonment, the earthquake, which eventually led to their release from prison, the conversion of the jailer, all of that confirms the validity of their ministry in Philippi. It's, to me, anyway, pretty shocking. How in the world does suffering, beatings, imprisonment, how does that validate success? If anything, to me, that smells an awful lot like failure, not success, at least as it is popularly defined. Furthermore, you would think that those experiences that were overwhelmingly negative, as Paul says in this letter, they treated us outrageously. I, I love that. You would think that those experiences would have prevented Paul from doing that same thing in a different city, or would have at least given him pause. I mean, he went down that road before, and then Thessalonica things were shaping up to be similar. If he learned anything, conventional wisdom would have said, keep your head down, try to appease the people, say only what they want to hear and what won't get you into trouble, lest a repeat of Philippi occur. But Paul, Paul presents for us this odd idea that suffering might actually be a marker of success. The suffering Paul and his friends endured, for him, in, in his understanding of it, was a sign of validation because it showed that he wasn't interested in winning a crowd, at least not for the sake of ego. He wasn't worried about saving himself from trouble. He was only interested, by his own admission here, in pleasing God. Wasn't concerned with popularity, even though popularity might easily be equated with success, but he was using a different metric. So despite the accusations being made against Paul, 
His argument here is that his life shows that he didn't have impure motives. I mean, what's in it for him if he's kicked out of yet another town? If he's once again in danger of being thrown into prison, he's not trying to deceive people to gain some sort of personal advantage. This did not help him out in any of those understandings of success. Let's continue reading in verse 4. He goes on, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. One thing I I think we find from Paul's um, argument for the validity of his ministry here is that popularity can never be our measure of success. Winning accolades, being admired, can't define success. And and the reason we can't allow that to be our framework of success, as Paul says here, we aren't trying to please man, but God. Maybe you remember earlier this year when we worked through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching that if our righteousness is performative in nature in order to gain respect, that's fine, but just know that that admiration and respect is all you're going to get. You have received your reward. If you're trying to earn respect from others, it is sort of a futile endeavor. We are trying to please God, not man. He goes on, we we came from God, God sent us, and we're approved by God. Now, how do we know if we are approved by God? Well, I think we find some clues here. The temptation is often to allow those outward markers of success to signify God's approval. So if I land the job I'm after, God must be pretty happy with me. Or if I get that promotion at my current place of work, or at the end of the year, if I get a raise, I must be approved by God. Or if my checking account is balanced at the end of every month, or if I uh, have a car that doesn't break down constantly, if those bad things don't happen to me, or if these good things over here do happen to me, then God must be on my side. God must be happy with me. So we often, I think, allow those outward markers of efficiency and ease to not only point to my personal success, but also indicate for me God's approval. And I want to suggest today that that is a really damaging perspective to adopt. Because first of all, it fundamentally changes how we view God. God becomes for us a vending machine who supplies everything I want in life. God is the one who can make all of my dreams come true and ensure that the best is yet to come if I can just make God happy and earn his approval. 
So I think it's damaging because it fundamental, fundamentally alters how we view God, but I think it also fundamentally changes how we interact with other human beings. The ends begin to justify the means. Paul points to that here. He says, we didn't use flattery. Flattery would have produced some results for us, but that wasn't our aim. That's not what we were after. The ends do not justify the means in that way. The, the point, I think, or one of the points, is that faithfulness doesn't always lead to efficiency or ease. In fact, it will often have for us the opposite result. In his novel, uh, A Farewell to Arms, speaking of war, Ernest Hemingway wrote, um, what one of his characters in the story says that no one ever stopped when they were winning. He's talking about fighting. No, no one ever stopped fighting when they were winning. And he, that character is remarking about a particular country in the story who is not going to stop fighting because they just won a battle. After a victory, people don't start, stop fighting. And he goes on to say this, it is in defeat that we become Christian. Now, I think there are a number of ways we might understand that statement from the character, but perhaps we could use this as a launch pad to, to think about what, what Paul is communicating here. Perhaps it is also in defeat that we discover whether we are truly remaining faithful. Paul says, I know that we have God's approval. Not because things are going particularly well for them. They weren't. Popularity isn't increasing. Ease isn't increasing. Efficiency isn't increasing but their suffering actually shows God's approval because when they suffered, they continue in faithfulness. Their, their ministry is not dependent on ease, on pleasure, on comfort. And I think this raises for us the question, how do we find and understand, define and understand success? For Paul, again, the validity of his ministry and I think for us, in many ways, the test of our success is do we continue in faithfulness? Regardless of the external realities, when, when we don't have the respect or admiration of others that we so desperately long for, when we don't experience the ease or comfort that we would like, when, when things in our lives feel like they are falling apart, when some of those key outward markers of success reveal that the bitter pill of failure is going to be our plight. In the face of all of that, will we continue to pursue life in Jesus Christ? When it's hard, when it's a slog, when, when the payoff just doesn't seem to be there or the payoff isn't what we expected or wanted, will we continue to walk in faithfulness? I think for followers of Jesus, if, if faithfulness is now the standard that we are after, at times success is going to look like failure and failure may look like success. I think that seems to be Paul's experience that he writes about here. And that's okay because our perspective has shifted. We can be confident regardless of the situation, to continue on, we can be content with our lot in life because our aim is to please God, not humans. Our aim is to experience communion with him, not 
pad our resume with accomplishments or connections or the admiration of others. So as we begin to move toward a time of celebration around the table of our Lord, I, I just want to leave a few questions for us to consider, questions that I am also personally wrestling with, and I invite you to wrestle with them as well. Number one, by what standard am I gauging whether I am successful? What is that metric that I'm using? Is it simple faithfulness or is it something else? It can be a host of things. By what am I determining whether I am successful? Are there ways in which I have directly or indirectly linked ease or comfort or success with God's love for me, God's approval of me? So if things are going well, God must be happy with me. If things are difficult, God must be angry with me. And if I find that that's the case, how might I move away from that, what, what I think is an unhealthy understanding of our relation to God? I would invite you to consider those questions as we come to the table this morning to celebrate around the body and blood of our Lord, to receive his gift of life, to receive nourishment for our souls, knowing that we bring nothing to this table, no accomplishment, no accolades, make us deserving or worthy of the love we receive and know at this table. I invite you to stand. I'm going to say a prayer for us and invite each of us to the table to, to feast around the person of Jesus Christ. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. You can come to the front. When you get to the front, there will be somebody here to speak these words over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements on your own and return to your seat. I'll say a prayer for us by way of invitation. Lord, we thank you for the example of somebody like the Apostle Paul who challenges us with his experience to resist those popular notions of, of success. And to seek your kingdom above all else, to seek to remain faithful to you and our calling as your children. We pray that you would strengthen us, empower us for that task. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things. Grant us not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, as we live among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?